Turn with me to uh, Titus chapter 2. We're going to continue on with a, a series of messages. We've been introducing and unpacking the concept of Maranatha, what it means to us, uh, both in name and in mindset. And I want to get back in today into the mindset of Maranatha through this passage in Titus 2, which I believe is one of the simplest... Well, let me back up and say Titus 2, the whole chapter is just this... It's this incredibly high, powerful chapter on, on, on the life in the church. And this little passage, these four verses, are, is one of the clearest Maranatha passages that you'll find. And, and, and uh, so Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, will be up on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you or if your phone isn't working. Uh, and I wanted to say I, your phones are fine. I know I, I, I get on you a lot about your phones. I realize we live in a digital age. We don't worship a book in, in ink in pages. We worship the Word of God, and you can, you know, best of all would be if we'd memorize it and be in us. So uh, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared, and in the person of Jesus Christ, and, and he, as the gift of grace of God to humanity, has brought the gift of salvation and made it available to all people. If you count yourself amongst all people, then salvation has been brought near to you. And um, somebody prophesied to me earlier today, today is a day, salvation. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so, Jesus, we ask in your matchless name that you would unpack for us our blessed hope that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, the significance of looking back and looking forward as we see it in this passage. We need hope. Lord, I pray that you would speak into my heart and that you would touch the deep, dry, dark places of my heart that I have yet to surrender to you, Lord. I say, come and fill me. Come, Holy Spirit. Let the words that are spoken now be yours and not mine. Let me decrease that you might increase. In Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned a few weeks ago that a word that the Lord had given me was establishing a fellowship of hope that embedded in this name, I believe, was the concept of establishing a fellowship of hope. And anytime I think of that, I'm reminded of this story. It's a true story about this family uh, who who who, who had settled in the Arizona desert And uh, one night, a a really fierce storm breaks out, a desert storm with rain and hail and high wind, and they kind of hunker down in their house. And at daybreak, uh, the the father, feeling pretty sick and pretty fearful about what he's going to find when he went out to look at his land, uh, goes out and outside, and the hail had, had beaten the ground to a pulp, uh, the house is partially unroofed. Uh, the the hen house had blown away, and there were dead chickens everywhere. Um, and it was de- he, he he described it as destruction and devastation everywhere he looked. And while he's standing there, 
just kind of in shock. I mean, imagine the shock of having your whole life, your whole physical life destroyed in, a, in an evening, and he's evaluating the mess and wondering, how in the world am I ever going to make it in the future? He hears this stirring from the, from the lumber pile that was the remains of what used to be the hen house, and when he looks over, there's a rooster that's climbing up and continued uh, until he'd reached the, the highest board in this pile of, of, of sticks. And the old rooster was, was soaking wet and almost completely featherless. But as the sun came up over the, that eastern horizon, the old featherless crow kind of flaps his bony wings and crows proudly. And when the, when, when the morning sun gets high enough that uh, it appears on the horizon, the, the beat-up, featherless rooster, amidst all the chaos and devastation, still crowed. And it announced the dawning of a new day. Why? Because it was his nature to do so. Because it was his nature to crow. I want to say to you at the very outset of this message that, that you might have adversity in your life, the winds of adversity, the, the, the stuff might be going you know, nuts in your life where it feels like devastation and destruction, and it might be even happening in your life right now. Your, your world might be feeling in some ways like it's falling apart because you've lost something or someone or there's brokenness or the, the spirit of the age, the attack of the enemy, all these things. You know, the, the lion, the, the, the mountain lion has is, is, is gotten your wrist in his jaws. But if you look closely enough, you'll see that the light of God's faithfulness shines through and you can rise above the devastation. And do you know Why? Because if you are called child of God, follower of Jesus, it is your nature to overcome. It's your nature. Boast in the hope of the glory of God. So I want to, just a quick review. I'll do this for the children in case you haven't been here. Avi, in case you don't know this, um, this word uh, that we pronounce Maranatha, um, it might feel a bit offensive to you. I know it comes from, it's, it's actually, a, 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 we get it, a Greek translate, transliteration of an Aramaic word that was either maran athah, which would mean the Lord has come, or it's marana thah, which means the Lord is coming or come Lord. And the scholars finding this in 1 Corinthians 16 don't know because of the way it's written which side to to put this on, either a past reality or a future reality. And so we claim it as both. When we say Maranatha, we are, we are saying we live in between these realities, that the Lord has come and the Lord is coming. And Titus 2 lays this out beautifully for us to say that we look back to the, the first coming of Jesus, his, his appearance when he came to us, and we look forward to his coming again. And so we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We're viewing or going back into today, what I would call the Maranatha mindset. Kids, if you're in here, I love it when you take notes. If you've got some ability to take notes, draw pictures, something that reflects this, this, this passage, take them, take notes, bring them to me. You need to convince your parents that, to, to realize what you and I both know, that you are old enough to receive revelation from God. 
you're old enough. You don't have to go across the hall and have flannel boards and teachers, although it's really good. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I think it's great to get instruction that's at your age level, but you have the ability in this room to receive revelation from God. Okay, kids? So, so pay attention and, and see what God has to give you, and I want to see what God gives you while we're here. But let me tell you, kids, what a mindset is. A mindset is a way of thinking. It's a way you think about things. So if what you have on your mind all day is like, you know, uh, your, your, the, your little device that your parents give you that you can play games on, uh, then you probably have something like a, a, a game mindset or an internet mindset or a TV show mindset or something like that. You know, um, you know occasionally when uh, I watch a, a, a movie, a really good movie or something like that, uh, that movie will kind of get into, I'll think about it a lot, and then I have kind of a mindset toward that. Oh, by the way, Dan, I see you moving back there. I'm sorry, when I cut the fellowship break, if you bought shirts... Um, we will have them for you at the end of the service, okay? They'll be here for you. So don't worry. The shirts aren't going anywhere, and, and we just didn't get a chance to do that. So a mindset. And what I'm saying is that your attitude in life is mostly determined by your mindset, by your way of thinking about things. And what I want to do today is unpack this special character of biblical hope as a way of getting into a, you in a mindset kind of way so that this Maranatha mindset might pervade the way you think about life. And so here's the question that you're asking, and I'm going to answer. I'm asking it for you just in case you're not. What is the special character of biblical hope? What makes biblical hope different in some way? Or, or you know, Well, here's my simple answer. Biblical hope is not finger-crossing. It's not wishful thinking. Um, you know, ordinarily, when we use the word hope, Avi, when we use it, I know it's, you know, a tikva, you know, the, 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 this is such a profound word in the, in the, in the, in the Hebrew mindset. The national anthem is, is about hope. The, the, I think perhaps the first city established that was really established is Petatikva, the door of hope. Uh, it, I mean, this is such a deep concept, but when we use it in America, we don't usually use it the way you do use it. We usually use it to express uncertainty rather than certainty. And so we say things like, when she says, I hope he gets home early tonight, what she really means is, I don't have any certainty that he will get home on time. I only desire that he does. Yeah. Or if I say, my hope is that my family will arrive safely, what I mean is, I don't know if they will or not, but it's my desire that they will. I don't, or if I say, my only hope of arriving on time to get, catch my flight is that all of the, all of the traffic winds up and all the lights are green. What I really mean is all of the green lights would bring me to that goal, but I don't have any way to be sure that all the lights are going to be green. So what we end up expressing when we express hope, we express uncertainty. But that's not the distinctive biblical meaning of hope, is it? The distinctive biblical meaning of hope is this a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. So in other words, biblical hope doesn't just desire something good to come. It expects it to happen. And, and it, it not only does it expect it to happen, it's confident that it will happen. It expresses a confidence, even a boastfulness, as Romans 5 says, that, that it will happen. There, there is a, what, we, what theologians call a moral certainty, that the good that we expect and, the, you know, and desire will actually come to pass. Let me illustrate what I mean by a moral certainty. I have a very strong moral certainty that Carol and I are going to stay married to each other as long as we both shall live. Right? And why do I say moral certainty? I say it's a moral certainty because it isn't based on like mathematical laws or, or logical reasoning. 
There's all kinds of, I mean, all kinds of reasons why the world would say that logically that you, you can't say that you have certainty that you're going to stay married. But when, when we speak of our future, we're not speaking of it from the standpoint of ordinary worldly terms of hope. We don't say, for example, we hope we don't get divorced. We speak in terms of confidence, even boastfulness and certainty because the character of a God-centered will in the, in the heart of a man or a woman is like steel. You know? When the word says hope in God, it doesn't mean cross your fingers. It means expect great things from God. Expect that he will do what he says he will do and as he promises. And so let me, let me open this up now a different way to say, well, okay, fine. Biblical hope is expression of certainty, of confidence. But what is it that we hope for? What is it exactly that we hope for? And our answer comes from Titus 2.13, from the verse that's right in the middle of that passage. The, the, what we hope for is we hope for, we, this blessed hope is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is the content? What is the content? What is the thing that, we, that our blessed hope is grounded in according to this? It's the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We set our hope, our confident expectation on the return of the Lord. The second coming of Jesus. Now, I don't have time to break this down today as far as, uh, uh, you know, I just don't have the time. It's not possible to enter into some of the controversies over the timing of this great event in relation to other prophetic events like the millennium and a time of great tribulation. I would encourage you to go back and listen to our dear friend Joel Richardson's excellent primer message on eschatology that he preached here in the beginning of January. Do you know there are people even in the body of Christ who deny a literal return of Jesus? They spiritualize that, 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 that message to say that he's not actually returning physically, which really cuts salvation in half. I'll show you that here in a second. What Titus 2, 11, 14 breaks down is two appearings of Jesus. Do you see it in the passage? You just leave it up on the screen. Um, I'm not sure if it fits all in one place, so just do your best. But what this, what this passage does is it, it unpacks two appearings of Jesus. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, and that word appeared is a Greek word that that we get the word epiphany from. It means it's manifest, it's, it's illustrious, it's like the sun breaking over the horizon in the morning. When the sun comes up, we grow, because it's our nature to do so. And, and, and what this is saying is, is the Lord just kind of, he just he manifests onto the scene. And he came and he brought salvation for all people. And there are two appearings that are referenced in this passage. One called an appearing of grace, and the other called an appearing of glory. For the grace of God has appeared for the salvation of all men. This is the first coming of Christ, the appearance of grace. And then verse 13, awaiting our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the second coming of Jesus. We look back to the first coming and say, Lord, we remember, we know that you came, it was an appearance of grace. And we look forward to the second coming when you'll return again, that's an appearance of glory. So first time grace, second time glory. Do you see the Maranatha that's embedded in that message? Do you see how it matters that he came in grace and he's coming in glory? I'll unpack it for you in case you don't. The 14th verse describes, you know, just how it was that that grace appeared. It says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good deeds. So when the grace of God appeared in human history about 2,000 years ago, grace appeared as a real man. Grace came in the form of a real man who really lived and really died to redeem us from sin and make us hardcore, committed, devoted, passionate 
people who are love, long for and love to do good deeds, to do good things, to live a good life. And that was the aim and the purpose of the appearance of God's grace in Jesus Christ is to get us right with God. He came to get us right, to fix the relationship, to make it so that the brokenness that happened, the anathema, the curse, the, 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 the being cast out of his presence that happened in the garden that he was working toward redemption is actually affected fully when Jesus comes and makes it possible for us to have right relationship with him. That's what it meant, you know, that, that first coming. Get us right with God and then set us up to live our lives for God, fully for God. And the, that same aim of grace is described in verse 12 as well, where it says the grace of God is training us to renounce. The word training means it's like a, it's like a, a um, it's like a, what do you call the teacher that's kind of before kindergarten? Yeah, but like, I mean, I don't know. Okay, let's go with a pre-K teacher. Or just a kid. It's like the, the early teachers in your life who teach you all the important things. You know, they say you learn more in your first two years than you learn the rest of your life. You know, the, your development happens. And the, and the lessons that you're learning, even before you get to school, will stick with you for life. And so the, it's, it's saying that the grace of God came to give us the foundational training that we needed so that we could renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live sober, upright, and godly lives. That's, that's, that's the same as saying in verse 14 that Jesus came to purify us and make us ready to do good things. So verses 12 and verses 14 are a sandwich that goes around verse 13. And both of them describe the aim of the effect of God's grace as it appeared when he came. When we look back upon his coming, we're like the, uh, well, oh, I'm not going to get ahead of myself. Looking back and looking forward, I think it would be fair to say on the basis of these four verses in, in Titus 2, that the incentive and the power to live a life for God, to, to live our life fully given over to God, that is, that, that is pleasing to God, comes from two directions. It comes, one, from looking back. On the, uh, you know, and, 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 and looking back with gratitude, with thanksgiving. Um, I read this morning, I think it's in, I don't remember what psalm it is, it says it's, uh, that a thankful heart is, is a primary evidence of giving glory to God. And so we look back with thankfulness in our hearts with, with, with deep gratitude to the grace of God that appeared in Jesus that came in his first coming when he purchased our redemption. Like this is what we look back on. I think of the prodigal son. It's my favorite chapter and my favorite story. And I think of the prodigal son. Once he'd come back into his father's house and he's expecting, he'd rehearsed his speech, I'll be a slave, I'll be a slave. And his father says, you're not a slave, you're a son. You know, puts the, 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 the robe, the ring, the fatted calf, the whole, once he's back in the house, he would look back upon that time of his life and, and, and always be thankful, wouldn't he, for what God had done for him. Be thankful that his true elder brother didn't despise his coming back, but marched into the city and plunged himself into a gory death that he would be made right with God. I mean, this is the story of, of, of the, that Luke 15 is getting at, that we can look back with, with awesome thankfulness that he purchased our redemption. But it also comes to, to us in a way that we can look forward to the, with hope, with blessed hope, with, with biblical hope to the glory of God that will appear when he comes and completes what he started. I don't have it up on the screen, but if you're, if you're a note taker or you like to follow along, flip in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, because it describes the connection between the past and the future work Jesus has done. It does it as clearly as any text I can find. This is what it says in Hebrews 9, 27, 28. And just as is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. 
So, this passage teaches very clearly that the saving work of Jesus began in his first coming when he, when he bore our sin uh, in his body on the cross. And, and it's going to be completed at his second coming when he saves us from the final wrath of God and gives us rest in the kingdom. And so the scripture says he's coming to save those who are waiting for him. And so my question to you is, are you waiting for him? Think about it. This passage is saying that if you, if you break the second coming from the first coming, you only have half the salvation story. You only have what he did for us. But it says he's coming back to rescue, to save, to, to bring into the fold those who are eagerly awaiting and longing for his appearing. And so again, my question is, are you waiting for him? Do you eagerly await the coming of Christ? And I don't mean this. I don't mean, do you believe in the doctrine that Jeff's teaching? Do you believe in the Bible that Jeff says, you know, this is what he's going to do? I don't mean that. I mean, do you really believe it? Do you carry it with confidence in your heart so much so that you could stand up in the midst of devastation and destruction and crow? You can test the reality of your faith by whether you are eagerly awaiting for Christ's coming. You know, I don't mean that you just think about the second coming all the time. It's all you ever think about. Even when you're in love, I'm deeply in love with my smoking hot wife. But I don't think about Carol every second of every day. I think about her a lot uh, over and over again, but not every second of every day. But you could ask yourself a couple of qu- you know, questions that I think are really get at it. One, does you, do you have a mindset? Does your mind frequently return to the truth that Jesus is coming back? You know, and when your mind turns to that truth, and the truth of his appearing, does it do something in your heart? Does your heart want it? Because I'm going to get at this at the end, but my expectation is if you were to get really honest, if we could like, you know, put the, the, the thoughts of your heart on the screen and you say, are you really eagerly wanting him to come back? That you might say, yeah, but not too eager. Like, not quite yet. I have some things I want to do, some things that are, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll maybe unpack that in a bit. And then third, you pray for his coming. Is there a Maranatha that, that rises up in you? The Maranatha cry was the cry of the early church. It was the watchword and the welcome word. It was, a, it was just right up there with shalom in terms of what, the, what the, the, the gatherings were marked by. Come, Lord Jesus. And if you come up short in answering those three questions, there, here are the possible explanations for why. I'm going to go from the least to the most serious of them. The first one is maybe you trusted Jesus as, as your Lord, uh, but you've not really been taught about the second coming. And the reason that you don't really long for his appearing is because you have ignorance regarding the the eager expectation that's supposed to be in your heart. And if that's the case, that's on me. That's on us if if you're here. I'll take the hit for that and we'll, and we'll, we'll walk you through that. But the second one might be, it might be that you trusted Jesus, you, you follow him as Lord, and you know in your head that there's truth about the second coming, but you've grown cold and distant and you haven't felt for some time like fire on the idea that Jesus is precious and he's coming and that seeing him would be, a, would be a fulfillment of all your longings. Like heaven isn't about geography. It's about camaraderie with the king. It's about getting near to him. And if it doesn't fill your heart with joy and a fire to say, man, I want him to come now. Maybe you've grown cold. And the third reason might be because you've never really submitted your life to Jesus as Lord. You've never really trusted him. And you might stand in desperate need today of not just getting a cry in your heart for him to come, but of new birth, of looking back to what he'd done for you. If any of those, those conditions fit you, then I want you to listen carefully as, as, as I try to show you from Titus 2.13 
why he's worthy of this eager expectation. My, my prayer is, is that he would touch your heart, touch all of our hearts, and make us love his appearing. Paul says that the appearance of the grace of God at Christ's first coming trains us to wait eagerly for our blessed hope, the appearing of him. And there, there, there's, there are so many cool things about that hope. Just throw verse 13 up there, Andy. Um, it, it's a blessed hope. I love this. I love that Paul says it's a blessed hope. Why would you have to say that hope is blessed? Because I think it's been the mindset of the world forever to, when we use the word hope to maybe not always use it in a way that expresses certainty. We have to eagerly await the appearance of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ because the hope he brings is blessed hope. It's the opposite of cursed hope. It's a blessed hope, not a cursed one. Our hope is confident expectation that he's coming to save me, to rescue me, not to bring me under his wrath. It's not just a blessed hope, it's visible. It says it's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. It's the appearing. Ever since, ever since God became a man, people have longed to see Jesus. Philip said to Nathaniel, come and see. Zacchaeus gets up on a tree, you know, so he could, so he could see, because he wasn't tall enough and he wanted to see him. The Greeks said to the disciples, sir, we would see Jesus. The apostle Paul writes, now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. And John seems to make everything hang on, on that one hope of seeing him. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I don't want a long-distance phone call. I don't want a FaceTime call. I want to see the lips of Jesus as close, close enough that I can smell his breath on that great day when the grace of his heart overflows and says, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to feel it. It's so close. It's a visible hope. It's also a glorious hope. John tries to put it in words. He says, I saw one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden girdle around his breast, his head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth issued a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. John had never seen anything like this. Even, even the transfigured Jesus wasn't like this. And Do you love the appearing? Do you long to see Jesus this way? If not, here's the deal. Here's, here's what I'd invite you to do with me. If not, just confess that. Confess it to him. He's not, he's not judging you for your lack of, of, of longing, but he, he wants an awakening of your heart. He, he, he wants you to set yourself upon and to, 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 to let your mind dwell. You know, he wants you to meditate. You know what meditation is? It's positive worry. When you, when, you, when you start worrying about something, oh my gosh, I just can't get my mind off of this thing. It's, it's a negative thought, right? Well, meditation is on, on the Word of God is just the opposite. It's just letting your mind dwell on something that's positive. And He wants you to, to meditate, to dwell on the thought of His coming for you, His coming for all of us. You might not be longing. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm just kidding. This is... Can I meddle just a bit? <clears throat> Is that okay? I'm going to tell you one of the reasons that you might not long for his appearing. One of the reasons you might not, he came first in grace and you're cool with that. Giving me more than I deserve in grace, that's great. <clears throat> but coming again in glory, 
one of the reasons you might not long for his appearing in glory is because you don't want to share your glory with him. You're not ready to, to lay down all of the things that, that might define um, your identity, your view of self. We live in a world that, 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 has, that has increasingly lifted up rights and empowerment and self things as the highest value of living, while the Bible continually, you know, Jesus continually puts forth in the New Testament the idea of laying your life down, becoming less that he might become more. And one of the reasons you might not long for his... When you, you, it might even you go, man, him coming back, that sounds a little scary when I read. It might be that way because you're not ready to relinquish your glory. But self-glory is the most massive hope stealer because it's an idol. And idols always steal our hope because they always crumble. They never, they never, they, they're never able to give what they promise. And so let me give you, I'm not going to break these down. I don't, this is another time, and I, I really, I, most of this I read from somebody. Uh, it's more of a coffee conversation, but I'll give you some signs of self-glorying. You want some? <laughs> you might not after I say them. Number one, you parade in public what should be kept in private. You love to put out in public uh, stuff that really should be kept in private because and, and I'm not talking about things that need to be said, things that need to be prophetically declared. I'm talking about the sorts of things that, that continually put yourself in the position. Number two is related, and that's that you might be way too self-referencing. You know, if you finish, if you finish, you know, 30 minutes of conversation over coffee, Steve and I go to coffee this tomorrow, and I say after 30 minutes of talking about myself, I, if I say, Steve, that's enough about me, why don't we talk about your thoughts about me? I might be a bit too self-referencing. Another sign of self-glorying is as we talk when we should be quiet. I think one of the key, key signs of high-level leadership is, the, is discernment, discretion, to know when to keep our mouths you know, quiet. Okay, the fourth is we, we're quiet and we should speak. When we believe that the stuff that's being talked about around us is so beneath us that we don't even want to enter into it. That might be a sign of, of, of vain glory. And, and the one that I do want to focus on is the last one, which is this. You might care too much about what people think about you. You might care too much about what people think about you. And so that, requi- that, that, that affects your heart in a way where you're, where you're really, you're not willing to relinquish your glory to the truth, the, the capital T truth of who Jesus is because you care more about man than you do God. Uh, the love of our own glory is the greatest competitor with, with, with God in our hearts. And sometimes we, we cloak that idol in a spiritual church-going disposition. And, in Matthew 21, Jesus exposes this idol in, in the hearts of a few with a single question. If you, if you uh, flip over to Matthew 21, um, Jesus is in the last week of his life, and he's, he's kind of done with messing around with people. That's the way I'd put it. He's, he's, not, he, he's, he's not playing games anymore or avoiding confrontation with the religious and the political elite. And the Jewish leaders, they, they, you know, they ask him this question, by what authority do you do the things, these things and who gave you authority? Because Jesus had come into Jerusalem triumphantly and they had, they had pronounced him as Messiah and he received it. And they're saying, by what authority do you, do you receive this this?" These, this kind of praise. I mean, you're, you're basically saying you're God. By what authority do you say this? And Jesus, 
is done playing games. Now, the question that they ask is actually a good question, isn't it? Isn't it a good question? By what authority do you do this? I mean, I mean, isn't that a question? I mean, if, a, if, a, if somebody pulls you over in a sketchy police car, I mean, it's, it's obviously like the youth group got their car and spray-painted it, and they're for a prank, they're pulling people over on Collins Road. And somebody pulls you over, and it's, a, it's like a, a Halloween costume, you know, with an with a, with a airsoft Kalashnikov, and they say, I want to see your license. Are you going to question their authority? It's not an unreasonable thing to do to say, who are you? By what authority? You know, do you, and so it's not an unreasonable question. But Jesus, because he knows their hearts, decides just to play this back on them and says, you know, I'll, I'll give you an answer, but first answer this question I have. And he asks them a question. The question he says is, um, what about the baptism of John? Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or was it from man? And they know the answer to this, right? They know what they carry. What is their answer to this? No, that's not their answer. That's what they trot out. Their answer is, it came from man, right? Because if John's baptism came from God, then Jesus could rightly you know, say this is who he is. And so their accusation that he's not God, he's not who he says he is, must mean that they believe that the baptism from John came from man. But what they reason it out in their mind, they say, if we say it came from God, then we're obviously agreeing with the authority. But if we say it came from man, then all the crowds around here who believe not in Jesus, but that John was a prophet, are going to get stirred up. And so because we, we have this fear of man, what we'll do is we'll just give a non-answer. They say, uh, we don't know. And Jesus says, because you don't have the courage to speak truth right now about what's going on in your heart, I'm not going to answer your question. The question, if it had been sincere, wasn't wrong. They were supposed to guard God's truth and God's people. That's why Jesus was willing to answer it, but his prerequisite question revealed that that their truth guarding was a sham, and John the Baptist's love for God's glory and truth cost him his head, and Jesus' love for God's glory is getting ready to cost him his life. He's going to be crushed by God's wrath, and and Jesus' question was designed to reveal whether these leaders loved God and, and God's glory and God's truth more than public approval. And if they answered him straight, he'd give them a straight answer. But when they were afraid of the crowd, in other words, they loved human approval and their own reputations more than they loved the truth, more than they loved God, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And so we have to remember that we do the same thing every time we distort or deny the truth for the sake of people's approval. Every time we distort or deny the truth for the sake of people's approval, we do the same thing. Self-glorying is revealed to be this massive idol in our heart when the Lord prevents us with an opportunity to glorify him by speaking the truth about our convictions or our sins, yet we're unwilling to do so because we fear that someone else might think something of us. Now, we've all done this. So thank God for the cross that covers our sins. If we confess our sins, he's faithful. Here's a Spurgeon quote that I love. You'll never glory in God until, first of all, God has killed your glorying in yourself. Today, let's resolve together not to be afraid of the crowd. Well, let, let's love the glory of God and his appearing more than being, you know, more than our own fear of, of, of our boldness and truthfulness getting us in trouble. I want to close with um, one more thing that I think fills us with the blessed hope. The, the, the real key to, to grasping and holding on to this blessed hope 
is in a, in a two-word phrase, it's just this. It's an eternal perspective. Kids, if you've, ever, if you've never read this story, have your parents... By the way, kids, ask your parents today how they hope and long for the coming of Jesus. Ask them to just explain to you how they live out that blessed hope. And part of the answer could be something like this. In Daniel chapter 3, there's a story about three friends of Daniel's named Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and they refused to bow down to, to, the, to this idol. They re- refused to give glory to anything other than their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And these, these Jewish men who are in captivity are, are brought to a place of giving their lives for their, for their belief. And when Nebuchadnezzar says to them, if you won't bow to this God, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace, they say, not really crazy about fiery furnaces, but if that's what you got to do, go for it. Because here's what you need to know about our God. Our God can and will save us, but even if he doesn't, we're okay with it. Why? Because these guys had a perspective of life that was bigger and bolder than the life they lived on earth. They, they didn't fear the one who could steal their life. They, they had fear of the one who had power over their life and their soul. And so they said, you can do what you want. And so they get thrown in the fire, kids. The three of them get thrown in the fire. And I'm not going to tell you what happens. Daniel chapter 3. You go read with your parents what happens. You ask them the story. What happened to these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And then ask them this, kids. Say, Mom, Dad, is your faith like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's? Do you have this kind of perspective? I'm stealing this from, from, a, from a, unabashedly stealing this from a, from a preacher named Francis Chan. And basically, he has this, this little illustration where he says, look at this little rope. If you're listening, you'll never catch this because this is a vis- visual thing, but I'm holding a, a, a long white rope. And, and just imagine this rope just stretches out all across the stage, but also through the wall, and it goes into eternity. So this white rope represents eternal life. You see it? It represents eternal life. It represents eternity. This is your life in God. The point that you receive new birth, you're born into this new life, and this rope goes forever. But here's the challenge. Do you see the red part right here? This red part represents your life on earth. You were born. I was born in 1964. I might make it another 20 years or something like that. This red part represents my life on earth. And the challenge is, is this, that most of us spend all of our time worrying about the red part because we don't have a perspective that we're made for, the, for eternity. In fact, most of us spend about two-thirds of the red part worrying about this last little part, will I have enough to make it for this last little part? Will I have enough to be able to play golf in Phoenix or take trips to visit the grandkids or whatever the case? We worry, am I going to have enough to make it to the end? As though this end of the red part is the end. It's not the end. And an eternal perspective will deliver us from this feeling that I'm not really ready for you to come and to reconcile all things because that might mess up my red part. You can afford to lay your life down 
if you believe he's coming to restore all things, including you. And so we say, Maranatha, come Lord. My heart burns for this. I long for his appearing. I'm going to ask you to stand. Let your singing be an amen. Let your feet be an amen. If you want to come and pray, come and pray. If you want to come and metaphorically grab hold of this rope, get your eyes off this red end and get your eyes on the eternal side. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would touch our lives with an eternal perspective, that you would fill us with a blessed hope that you are coming and soon. We long for your appearing, that you would come and you would restore and you would fix everything that's broken. We thank you that you came and that you saved us and made right relationship with you a possibility through your death on the cross. But now, Lord, we long that you would come and complete, you would come and rescue those of us who are eagerly awaiting you. Come, Jesus. You come forward if you feel led.